Good to have all of our guests here at Calvary Gospel Church with us. This morning we made reference of several people being baptized. And we have with us tonight Sister Ella Ray. And she was recently baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost. And Ella is right near Sister Luke and Grandma Davis, kind of sandwiched in between these two. If you get a chance to shake her hand, this is Sister Anna Spearstead's sister. And recently she was with us and had a birthday. And uh, it is great to know that at the age of 85, she has been filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that great? Praise God. So we'd like to take just a moment of our time. Now, don't get out too far from where you are because we're ready to preach. But turn around and shake hands with a guest, would you? Chapter of 2 Corinthians. I would like to read three verses. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, 17, and 18. While you are looking, uh, we need to send an ambassador out in the vestibule to see if we can quieten the condition on the foreign front. <laughs> we want all of our guests to know that we're not always this way. Many times we're worse. But it is good to have all of you here, really. We're just one big family, and we love each other, and we're just so glad when we're together. We only see each other about six or seven times a week, but, but we really are thrilled when we see each other. <laughs> Praise God. Aren't you glad for the family of God? I'll tell you, the Lord is so great. Thanks, all, thanks to all of you so very much for all of your work here. Uh, this week, and uh, I want to especially uh, say again to those who worked helping us get our Christian school in order, thank you. I inadvertently left out a couple of names of people who helped, and uh, I just, I don't know why, but it just slipped my mind. Sister Debbie Rutherford worked over here with us on a Monday night before our inspection, real late, and also... Brother Steve Grant. So we want those two to know that we really do appreciate your work. And I wish I could start calling names of all the people who came by and worked. But uh, you did a swell job. And the only thing that I saw that I didn't particularly like, and that was the trash around the dumpster. But when you haul it all out there, uh, there's no place to put it. So, uh, we'll just have to do something, park a bus or something in front of it. If you're a guest and you happen to park by the dumpster, uh, just uh, ignore it when you go by. It just looks terrible, doesn't it? We'd also like to say that <clears throat> we're not running all of our buses. And we met after church Thursday night, and the church board has decided 
that the 69 GMC bus, which is in good condition with an exception of tires, that we're going to buy new tires and put on the bus, and we're going to give the bus to Brother Will Hoyt and the work in Mexico. He was looking for one, and he knew we weren't using it, said he'd like to buy it, and we decided we'd just give it to him. Can you say praise the Lord for that? And I'll tell you what he's going to use it for. It's a unique idea. There are a lot of Mexican villages that do not have churches, and they're small in number. Some of the little villages, 60, 70 people, some up to 100, 200, just thousands of little villages like that. And if you start a church, you have to get government approval. That's for the building. And also the building becomes the property of the Mexican government. And Brother Wilhoyt is going to take out the front two seats on one side and pull a pulpit in it. And they will go from village to village with a mobile church. And uh, he said the people in Mexico, uh, by large, don't know any of anything that's very nice. And that bus will be like a greyhound to them. And he said we can we can get a hundred on that bus to hear the gospel. And... Uh, then we don't have to get government approval or anything like that. We can just get them all filled with the Holy Ghost. And we'll say, we'll bring the church back next week. <laughs> it's great. <clears throat> just great. And I think it's going to work good. And I know that Brother Will Hoyt will do great. Thanks for all the cards. Somebody just handed us one. And, and uh, Sister Grant, where did she go? At any rate, she wasn't supposed to leave yet. Uh, Sister Grant and I are celebrating our 24th wedding anniversary today, and I just want to thank all of you for all the cards and the gifts and everything. It's just been so great. You've just been a wonderful, wonderful bunch of people. And Sister Grant, to put up with me for 24 years certainly denotes Christian character. And uh, while I do believe that you have to be born again to go to heaven, I think the only exception would be that anybody who lived with me 24 years ago ought to be able to go to heaven regardless. So, <clears throat> but uh, she's been a wonderful, wonderful wife and just a, a great servant of the Lord, and I appreciate her so very much. Some of you even wrote poems and gave uh, to us. Sister Veda Webb wrote once that she couldn't find a good enough card, so she wrote a poem. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful poem, and I really do appreciate that. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Now, I am speaking tonight, I said, to the children who are under 12. So first, I'd like to have all of the, well, the 12-year-old and under. So it would be under 13, actually. Pre-teenagers to stand. All of you, all the little children. We never have a service in which we just address them, except Sunday school. And children are so very, very important to the work of the Lord. Jesus took you and said, Now if all of the big people in the world had faith like you, they would understand the kingdom of God. Is that what he said? In fact, he even addressed the big people and said, Except ye have faith like these little children. You can't enter in. Did you know that that sometimes we feel that 
to reach the children that we got to preach something that's totally simple and down to earth. I, you know what I found out? I found out that children understand things that they don't understand. <laughs> it almost seems like a contradiction. Now, how do you do that? That simply means that you accept by faith that which you cannot rationalize simply because God said it. See, that's what he was talking about. So we are addressing a good number of children. Now, you can't see all of them because some of them standing up are no taller than you when you're seated. I want to preach tonight on the subject, My Big World. And I want to read from 2 Corinthians, the 4th chapter, verse 16. I believe the Lord definitely laid this on my heart to do. And while the children are standing, the adults may be seated. But uh, you kids, look on Dad or Mom's Bible or somebody's Bible there. And let's go down through the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4.16 For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affection, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. All right, all of you kids may be seated. <clears throat> now, the latter verse that I read is the verse that I want to make reference to to start with. For we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Now, children, all of you kids... This scripture is so very important to you because you have to use your imagination to live in a world that's as big as our world. And I, I remember when I was your age, and I remember how I felt about such a great big world. And I knew that I was just such a small figure in such a big world. But in order for me to fit and feel like that I belonged, I had to use my imagination. Well, I do not believe that everything that is imaginative is real. I believe that sometimes you have to protract or project yourself into situations that you do not fit into in order to someday fit there. Now, I think one of the healthiest things in the world is for a child to have an imagination. Now, an imagination can get you in trouble. All you kids remember this because you can start lying sometimes. But I will address the, the parents now. I will say this, that if your child comes up to you and tells you something that he did today and you knew good and well he didn't, don't brand it all together as being a lie. As a lie. Because in his mind, he really did do that. 
And you need to talk to him about it. Let him know. Now, you're just dreaming this. But don't brand it all together as a lie. And the reason why, because lies are stories that are intentionally told to lead people to believe things that are totally false. And I think there is a limit to how much you can use your imagination. I think that one of the healthiest things in a person's life for proper development in the area of of creativity is an imagination. They've got to be able to use their imagination. Now, what I want to do to all of the children, I want to tell you how it was when I was a kid. I think that this is so important. Now, I, I grew up way, way, way back in the sticks. I mean, where the corn grew tall. And uh, we raised a lot of beans. Had a lot of tillers of the ground. I spent almost every summer with my grandfather and grandmother. We worked in the cotton patches. Now, if you've never worked in a cotton patch, well, put it this way. You haven't really missed a whole lot. (laughs) That's one thing that I I could just erase from my life and and uh, and probably I wouldn't feel so bad about it but I used to just uh, work alongside my grandfather now my grandfather paid me to work in fact the I remember when I worked in the cotton cotton patch and I, I would work right along beside of my grandfather and I was just a little squirt and he paid me a sum total of a dollar 75 a week now if you want to know how much work I did, I got up at daylight and we worked until dark. It's a long time. You see, there is something inside of a child that tells him that he's something that he isn't. And I always felt that I was a great big guy living inside of a little tiny body. Now, that's the way I felt. I felt I could do anything my grandfather could do. The only limitation I had was in my body. I could pick as much cotton as my grandfather, providing I could somehow get my body bigger, you know. You know, in my mind, I could do it. And I still remember one day as we sat underneath a wagon, hot, hot August day. You talking about hot? It was hot. And we took a jug of water uh, wrapped up in an old gunny sack, and uh, we drank that water. And he said, don't drink too much now, John. You're going to get sick. You know, I drank that water, and oh, I just, I just felt that uh, I just couldn't make it. And I remember looking at his muscle, and I'd look at my muscle. And uh, my only limitation in picking as much cotton as my grandfather was the size of my body. Children sometimes feel entrapped in their bodies. You know, I just felt if I could get out of my body, somehow I could do anything anybody could do. 
I had a great big world, but I was in a little bitty cage. You know? And this causes you to imagine things that are so real because you discover that there's more to you than just a body. And there is in all of us more than just a body. And so <clears throat> I would pick cotton along with my grandfather and then I'd chop cotton along with my grandfather and I spent a lot of time trying to make my body big so I could expand in the world that I knew was there. And I remember doing chin-ups. I used to do a lot of chin-ups. Then I started lifting weights. And uh, then I started running, jogging. I used to run every place I went. I'm serious. You. I went for years jogging five miles every day. We had a lake over the back of the house, two and a half miles. When I say jog, I mean I could run over there and run back. I wanted my body to be big because I, I felt that, that I, was, I was just in a cage. And, and I was bigger than, than, than what I was. But I, my limitation was I was trapped in this little tiny body. Now, <clears throat> this caused me to, to think certain things. And to do certain things. You know, <clears throat> you see a movie as a child, and you just really want to be a cowboy so bad. And I made myself a stick horse. And uh, this is not just one thing. I mean, I did it for a long time. Make a stick horse, and I had a hat. Of course, in Texas, everybody wears a hat, and I had boots, and my dad would get me a, get me a, uh, gun, you know, pistol, and well, I was a big, tough cowboy. Now, no offense if we have any Indians here, but I kill more of your race than <laughs> Custer ever got a chance at. <clears throat> By the way, if you didn't know it, you know, Custer invented the arrow shirt. So, <laughs> so I might tell you about that. <clears throat> Somebody said, we won't worry, he got sued. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'll tell you the truth, you know, <laughs> preach. <laughs> but, but really, you know, you, you just play this. You actually live in this, you live in this world. And, and, you, and you really think that it's real. Now, in staying with my grandfather... We would, I would have some of my cousins to come there and stay. And just so happened in, in the age bracket that I was in, you know, it was many, many years in which I was, the, I was the only son in our immediate family. I still am. I don't have any brothers. And my grandfather and grandmother had all of these girls, but they did not have a grandson but me. Now, <clears throat> children 
they like to do things that grown-ups like to do. And I still remember on the days in which we didn't have to work in the field, my grandfather would go to town or he'd go to the auction or someplace, leave us there. And I still remember a little wooded area that I used to play in. A lot of sweet gum trees there. Now, if you don't know what a sweet gum tree is, how many of you know what a sweet gum tree is? Several of you do. It, uh, a sweet gum tree, we used to take and cut a little bit of the bark in several places, and this gum would run out and would chew that. Boy, I'll tell you, that was the best gum you've ever seen in your life. But see, I was not fortunate enough to go to town very often. And uh, I would take my pocket knife and cut places, slits on the tree, and let this stuff get ooze out, and I'd chew it real sweet. And it was like, it was a gum. It really was a gum. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to chew it now, but <laughs> at that time, I mean, it was really something. Well, we used to play among the sweet gum trees. Now, <clears throat> I specifically remember this time after time after time, because I was the only boy. When we would set up house and everything like children do, I'd have to I'd have to play the role of, of the man in all the houses around there. See, you get yourself in this imaginative world, see. So uh, when they went to town, I was the gas station attendant. When they went to church, I was the preacher, see. When they went to the bank, I was the banker. And uh, I was the husband in the households. You know, just, I was the farmer in the field. I was the only boy, see. But uh, <clears throat> we used to get some clothes, and we used to dress up. I remember we started out with a wedding. And uh, <clears throat> I never did like this idea of marrying one of my sisters, because I couldn't get myself into my my world, because my sister and I, regardless of which one it was, I was always fighting with them. So, you know, you get this little thing in your mind, and you don't want to, you just, you know, I'd rather marry one of my cousins. So we'd start out, and, and we'd dress up. And you, all of you kids, have, have you remember dressing up? How many of you, uh, you adults, you remember doing that? You really dress up. I mean, we'd dress up, and, and uh, of course, I had to do the marry. I was a preacher, plus I was also the groom. But uh, I managed somehow to do it. And uh, we would take and, and dress up, and then we would, uh, we would get married. Now, after we got married, uh, we built a house. Now, how we built a house was we'd take a big area, and we would uh, sweep the leaves off. We'd take some kind of a branch or something, sweep the leaves back, so that the partitions in the house, you know, the walls... They were just little mounds of leaves, and we'd have the doors going, and here's a bedroom, and here's a bedroom, and here's a living room, and here's the kitchen. And, and, and uh, really, it was, a, it was a very, very exciting and interesting thing. And then I made a big yard fence around it, and because, you know, the world was so bad and full of criminals, of course, uh, you know, nothing violent ever happened in our part of the country. Uh, but nevertheless, you, you still know that that's in the world. I, we had a dog by the name of Sport, and I used to go get Sport 
old sport we called them. I used to tie them out in our backyard. Talking about the yard that I built. Tie them to a little sweet gum tree. And, and while we were lying down sleeping, you know, uh, we wanted sport to bark at criminals, you know. So I'd go up to the house and slip into my grandmother's cupboard and get a biscuit. She used to keep a bucket of biscuits in there, and we'd take, uh, for our afternoon snack, what we did, we'd take a biscuit, a cold biscuit, and we'd run our finger down in it and hollow it out and pour it full of syrup. Now, I don't know if you've ever eaten anything like that or not, but man, <clears throat> I think that's where Dunkin' Donut got their idea, you know. <laughs> but, but anyway, <clears throat> that's what we did. That's what we did. So I'd get one of those biscuits and I'd bring it down and I'd put I'd tie it sport and I'd put it just about this far from him. And the reason why is because then I'd run over there and lie down and close my eyes and sport wanted that biscuit so bad he'd start barking. And man, I'd get up and I'd run for the gun, which was only a little stick, and I'd ready to shoot a criminal. You know, you do a lot of things like this. <clears throat> now this is where we used to play house. And then we decide that we want a baby. And we thought that babies were ordered out of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. <laughs> and I'm serious with you. So <clears throat> we would secure the nearest Sears and Roebuck catalog, which happened to be in the outhouse. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Now, all of this has a reason. I have a reason to say this. And we'd pick out the babies that were pretty, and uh, we'd place our order, and then <laughs> we'd go to town, which happened to be the bedroom in the back of our grandmother's house where we had our toy box, and we would pull out a couple of old dolls and... Uh, the clerk there in the catalog department at Sears and Roebuck Incorporation would give us the baby. And we'd take the baby <laughs> and feed that baby. And, and uh, we, we noticed that when women had babies that they, they were laid up for a few days. And so the husband had to do the cooking. I made mud pies and all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> now... <clears throat> You know, those things become real to you. They really do. And they were real to me. And I would play so hard and run so much. And my legs would hurt me so much. I could not sleep at night. And my grandmother would pick up my tired body. I remember doing a lot of times. We'd get out on the porch and pray before we go to bed. And, uh, man, I was so tired. I tried to pray with Grandpa, and I couldn't, man. He, my grandfather could pray the loudest and the longest of any human being you've ever seen. Really, he could just, I mean, he'd just raise the rafters. But uh, i just almost go to sleep, and my grandmother would pick me up and take me to bed. And I still remember doing that. And she'd read a few things to me by the bedside, tuck me in. I remember waking up a lot of times. My mind was so active on 
that world that I lived in, that I really thought, you know, you wake up and you really, you really think that you're, this is your life. This is what you're doing. And I remember standing before the mirror a lot of times, quite disappointed in the fact that I was still just a little squirt. And I thought, my world is too big for the size of my body. I can't take it. And I would run and work, and my grandfather told me that chopping wood would get your body bigger, and man, you're talking about going through excruciating exercise. He had a 100-acre farm, which was not a big farm, but it had a lot of timber in certain areas, and I picked out the tallest trees. There was no tree that I couldn't climb. I'd climb those trees, and I'd come back home to that little swept-out spot, and... uh, I was a lumberjack, and I'd been out working, and you just really live in that world. It's a, it's a thing to you. Now, <clears throat> after a while, what happens to you as you grow older and you go into adolescence, you begin to discover yourself, and you realize that some of the dreams that you had, they just don't seem to be within reach. When you're little, they're there. But after a while, mom and dad snaps you out of that dream world that you're in. And you begin to look at yourself as being a different type of person. And then as you get older... You begin to set goals for the future. And this is when you become frustrated again because you realize that you're still looking for something that's that's so big and you're so small. And it's hard to accomplish things when you're limited to the body. Now, wouldn't all of you... Let me talk to the teenagers now. Wouldn't you teenagers... If you could, wouldn't you like to add certain things to your personality and to your character and to your talents? I would say that everybody here would like to draw better than what you draw. You'd like to sing better than what you sing. You'd like to be prettier and more handsome than what you are. All of you would like to be smarter than what you are. I mean, all of these things we place premiums on. I mean, who wants to be the school dunce? You know, who wants to be the guy who, you know, can't do anything? And I think that 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 children can be so cruel sometimes. You know, they they got all kinds of nicknames and and things. You know, you cannot escape school without its mark on you. I remember the kids I made fun of. I could run faster than they could, most of them. And, you know, you just take advantage of what you can do and make the best of it, and you live kind of a fearless life. And even people who have such good intentions, you know, you make fun of them. Nothing's right. You know, if you're too nice, then you're square. And, and you know, if you're not nice enough, you're a snot. And 
You know, just everything is wrong. You know. You go out on the playground and don't you really pity the guy, you know, sets over there. Everybody's chosen but him. He's the last one chosen. This is made reference to in, in Dr. Dobson's tapes, and I'd already talked to Brother O'Neill when we when we choose uh, baseball teams or softball teams. I said we're going to draw straws. We're not going to be choosing because you hate to see a guy just stand there while everybody's chosen. And some people who just stood there and they were embarrassed turned out to be one of the better players. See, but we didn't know that, or you didn't know that when you were choosing. Well. You see, when I, when I began to look at life, and as I grew older, I set a whole lot of goals for myself. But I set a lot of goals that I was not able to reach. I've always wanted to be a better person than what I presently am. I feel that there is a big world for me. And I feel like somehow I just can't arrive there. That uh, what happens is it's, it's like when grandmother tucked me in. And grandpa told me some of those bedtime stories. And I still remember the alarm would go off at daybreak. And I'd wake up in my still imaginative world. Only to smell real bacon cooking. And eggs sizzling, I could hear them. And I realized, hey, I'm still right here. And my world seems to be so small, the actual world. But the world of my mind and my imagination, it's big. And I could really live in it if I, could, if I wasn't entrapped in, in, in this size body. Just a little skinny body. I'm talking about yesterday. <laughs> you really you really wish you could. And as a teenager, I always longed for something I never got. We were poor people and the rich guys in school, you know, they, they drove the flashy cars around and someone would come down to my house, you know, and man, I, I just uh, I just had an old wreck looking bike and a the BB gun that'd been taped up by all kinds of tape and and you know I played with a lot of things that I didn't have a real football you know I used to used to we used to take feed sacks and mother made all of our shirts out of feed sacks I don't know if any of you ever wore feed sack dresses or shirts but that's you know they certain prints and she'd pick them out and of course the thing about it is they all different dye lot numbers and when you put them together they, they, even though the pattern was right, the color wasn't right. Kids at school would make fun of you because you could spot feed sack shirts. And I'd make my footballs, I'd take this, the twine, and I'd take and roll it up and get a round ball, and then I'd take something and paper something, put on each side, and I'd get it, you know, uh, uh, in the shape of a football so it would pass, and that's all I had. I could see myself as a big pro football player. You know, you go through these stages, you want to be something, something. If I could just be famous, if I could experience a world that's bigger than my own world. And then you look at yourself and you say, but 
I'm not smart enough. I'm not big enough. Boy, if I could have gotten to weigh a lot, you know, but I couldn't. I just, man, I used to eat. You're talking about eat. I'd eat and eat and eat. I tell some of these boys, now you watch out. Don't be eating so much. You develop an appetite when you're young. When you get old, you're not burning the calories. You, <laughs> you still have that appetite. <clears throat> See? And it really does work that way. At least I think it does. But uh, I thought if I could, I, I could play football, and I thought I could play professional football, providing I could get a little bit bigger. So I talking about chin-ups, and, and I held a school record in, in uh, Henderson on chin-ups. In the ninth grade, I chinned up 42 times, which was a, even a high school record. But uh, <clears throat> I'd still look at myself in the mirror, and I'd say, the limitation, it's still there. I, I just can't really, I can't, I can't do what I want to do. You know, I just can't be what I want to be. There's a big, big world that I want to experience and live in, but I'm I'm trapped. I really felt I was trapped. I got married at a very young age. In our part of the country, uh, the children married at that time a lot younger. And I, th- I think that all of you are aware of this. I married when I was 18 years old. Now, I didn't give any thought about it. I thought I was a man. I had a good paying job. At least I thought I did. I was making a dollar an hour. I'm serious. I had a nice car that I bought and paid for myself. And, uh, you know, I just thought, you know, I thought I was a man. At least I I looked at it that way. uh, Sister Grant's younger than I am. Now, I'm not going to tell you how old she was when we got married. But she was just a young lady. I mean, a real young lady. And really, we had no right to be married at that age. Somebody asked me, said, Brother Grant, if you had it to do all over again, would you get married at that age? No, I wouldn't. And that's the reason why I would not endorse you getting married at that age. Do you regret that you did? I don't regret it. Then why wouldn't you? Well, because, see, you don't know how marriage is going to turn out. Teenage marriages usually don't work. You know, it's, it's, my wife and I went through a lot of hardships and troubles just because I thought I was big and grown, and I wasn't. And she went through a lot of heartaches and troubles. You know, and she wasn't grown. She thought she was. While a lot of responsibilities piled upon you certainly does develop you physically and mentally and emotionally faster than a life that does not demand responsibilities still. You know, you're just a kid. As I get older, I'm inclined to believe, somebody asked me, when do you think adulthood should occur? What do you think about it? Now, I know that I'm speaking to a young audience I really think adulthood should be set at 30. And you may say, Brother Grant, that's when—that's where the Bible said it. That's where the Jews said it. See? 
This is the reason why Jesus didn't start his ministry until when he was 30. See, you, because a credibility had not been established. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're under 30 that you, you're not any good. See? But you see, the way we... What happens is people begin to live in a world that is is really just an imaginative world. It's a... It, it's a figment of their imagination. It, it might become a reality if they were big enough and powerful enough. But, but because of the limitations that you have, you know, it doesn't work. While my little world was very much real to me, it was only in my imagination. And there's no way that I could make a house out of leaves. You know? There's no way that you can turn in orders at Sears for babies. You know? It's just, but all of this was real to me. I mean, it was real to me. Very real to me. And I remember I used to be the preacher. And I remember when we went to church, we always went to the back porch because it was up. And I got on the back porch because we had a platform then. And I got up there, and I, re I very well remember one day preaching. And, man, my grandmother was in bed sick. and I mean, she was really sick. She had pneumonia or something. And my grandfather working in the field. And he heard, he just had a new lake dug there. And uh, it was filling it with water. And he told us not to go down to the lake. And all of a sudden he heard me. And he thought I, I was screaming what I was doing. I was preaching. See? <laughs> and he thought I had fallen in the lake. He tied the team of mules right in the middle of the cotton patch to a little old scrub brush that was growing up around a stump and ran for one solid mile to the house, only to find me standing on the back porch preaching to my three sisters and some of my cousins. I mean, I was preaching. You know what? And, and you know, there, even then, I wanted to be a preacher. I really did. Because I just felt that there would be some fulfillment in preaching. And I'll tell you, I could preach, man. I could preach. I didn't know much about Acts 2.38 then, but you all, all kids, you know, they know, they know, they know really just, you know... And so I was telling my sisters how horrible, rotten they were as sinners, and that sinners are going to die, and they're going to be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, and man, I was laying it on them. You better get down to this altar. And the altar happened to be the doorsteps. And uh, man, I was laying it on them, and one of them got down there and started to screaming and crying because we'd been to a brush arbor meeting and we found out that's the way they did it and we were living in that. She was screaming and I was still preaching and grandfather was running and scared him half to death. <clears throat> See. Now let me just say to our children, you know, I think that an imagination's very, very healthy and I think if you dream that it's very, very healthy to your future life. 
Because I think that America largely is losing its dreamers. People who are just content to be nothing. Plain nothing. Somebody asked me, what is your number one pet peeve in this life, Brother Grant? My number one pet peeve in this life is a male who will not work. That's my number one pet peeve. There is nothing in all of God's earth that turns me off and gets me aggravated more than a man who will not work. Now that, that's my number one pet peeve. Now there are a whole lot of things that just really get me. I mean really get me. I saw something downstairs the other day. One of the boys heard me say, I mean, I, when I saw it, I, didn't, I don't cuss, see. No Christian does. Somebody told me, he said, do you believe Christians cuss? I said, I never, I never heard one cuss. Never. Well, they said, what about this person? He, he, he let one out one day. And I said, well, I said, I never heard a Christian cuss. But it got under my skin, and I, I said, well, my, my. I said, saw my legs off and call me shorty. <laughs> you know, I just, I couldn't believe what I had seen. Really, it was just, you know. But my number one pet peeve is a man who will not work. Really. Now, <clears throat> see, there, there's not a, really a shortage of work. They say, there's a shortage of work in America. Oh, there's not a shortage of work. There's a shortage of Paying jobs, there is a difference, see. See, I'm not talking about working on a paying job. I'm talking about working. See, if a man is unemployed, he's still working, and you can always find something to do, then more power to you. I think that's great. But my number one pet peeve is to find a man who will not work. And you see, America's losing its dreamers. And so to you children, it's all right to dream. It's all right to try to figure out what you're, you're going to be. You may not ever be what you're dreaming, but at least your mind becomes fertile. And the brain becomes productive. And you learn to work that brain. And you set certain goals. There's certain things that, that you reach out to. One, of the, one picture, and it's a very... Uh, popular picture, and I don't know the name of it this time, but I've seen it two or three times. But the picture that, that really does do something, the picture, it was taken, it was, uh, I said taken, it was drawn, it was a Kansas scene, plains, where there's wheat on both sides, and right in the middle is nothing but a, but a train track. And there is a little boy that's, that's running down beside the track, and the train is just past him. And it's going over the horizon. The smoke is bellowing out. Part. You see, what goes through my mind when I see that is that little boy wishes he could go where that train's going. He's always wondered where these tracks lead. And so as a result, he's out in the middle of nowhere. 
I mean, there's nobody around. It's a lonely venture for him. But he's run his legs off, hoping that he can keep up with that train and go wherever that track goes. And you see, that's what I see in so many human beings. What keeps us going? The Bible places a very definite emphasis on hope. Hope that is seen is not hope at all. And so as a result, the young child who develops that imagination, embedding deep down inside of the very crevices of his being, is hope. I've got to become. I've got to do. I've got to be. And he looks at himself a thousand times in the mirror. He expands his chest. My world would be a big world if I weren't limited to such a little tiny scrawny body. Now you can see this not only in biblical characters, but you can also see this in people's lives today. You know, what caused me to want to get married at 18? I wanted to establish a new world. And so I did. But I'll tell you what. <clears throat> we had three children. At the time which I gave my heart to the Lord, I had... One child and one on the way, and and uh, I had a good paying job, and all of a sudden I hit a snag in which disappointment came. It was like I kind of went to sleep one night, and I woke up to realize that as much as I love my wife, as much as I love this small lad, John, who's in the crib, this is not a big enough world for John Grant. I really wasn't that happy. And so I gave my heart to God. I'll tell you what. When I gave my heart to God, my world expanded. It became a big world for sure. Really. And I remember Brother Ennis Fuller in 1960 taking me, 1961, pardon me, and uh, baptizing me. My dad and I were baptized. He did not live for God. He gave his heart to the Lord the same time I did. I worked at R.G. Letourneau, and, and he did also. He's a welding foreman. I was a supervisor in a pattern shop working with the draftsmen in tool design and such, and and uh, uh, I designed the baptismal tank. My dad and I went and bought the, the metal, and and uh, I could run the press brake and the shears and punch press and cutting torches and such. I cut all the parts and and took them up to my dad one night, and he and I welded them together. We stayed over time, built a baptismal tank, took it to the church. We primed it with salt water primer that you we were making offshore drilling rigs at the time and put it in the church and plumbed the water up there and filled up the tank. 
My dad was the first one to go down in that tank in Jesus' name, and I was the second one. And we could have done it otherwise. We could have gone out to the river, but the church didn't have a baptismal tank. I just felt that I wanted to do this. And I'll tell you, my world became great. When I gave my heart to God, you cannot believe the things that Jesus did for me. He did a lot for me. I mean, a lot for me. Fill me with the Holy Ghost. Let me say this. You know, children, if you're sick, Jesus can heal you. He really can. You know, I remember even one time when I was playing church. I had a sore that was on my leg. I still got a big scar someplace right in here. And this sore, I I got it through bumping. I was plowing and... and, uh, the mule, the, 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 the plow hit a stump and stopped, and I went forward and plowed myself right into the plow itself and scratched it and because I had to keep working there, and I got dirt and everything in it, you know. It was bleeding and got infection in it. It wouldn't get well, I don't know why, but it lasted about two years. And I remember when we were playing church that uh, I laid hands on myself. I was a preacher, and I was also the uh, the sick person. I laid hands on myself and prayed. And uh, I told my mother about praying. She said, well, I'll help you pray. And you know the Lord healed that just like that. Went away. Been there for a long time. I've still got the scar there. But, you know, Jesus can heal you. He really can. And he can do so many great things. The hope that's in your heart. Some of you who are here, you want to be missionaries. Uh, that's all right. If you want to be a missionary, just pretend you're a missionary. That's all right with Brother Grant. Now, I'm not saying that you ought to solicit for PIMs or anything like that. But <clears throat> but I think it's very, very important in, in your development that you spend time thinking about what you're going to do and what you want to be. I really do. I don't know why God called me to preach, but I, I have this idea that I spent so much time when I was a kid thinking about being a preacher that it became such an embedded idea that when God really wanted to talk to me about preaching, I could not escape it. Even though I did try. But it was there. It was there. I say it was there. When I got in the church and the Lord filled me with the Holy Ghost, I found that, wow, being in the church is almost like playing in my father's or my grandfather's pasture corner there. I found out that giving my heart to God is a, a true espousement, equivalent to a present day marriage. I took on a new partner. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11:2, For I am jealous over thee with a godly jealous, and I have espoused thee, that ye may be a chaste hus- a bride, a chaste virgin, unto one husband. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. 
Now, while I do realize that the marriage supper has not really taken place, there has culminated in my life a relationship with the Lord equivalent to a present-day marriage. I also know as a result of this that Jesus Christ Himself, through the promises of the Word, He opened up the closet one day and He began to pull out new garments and began to put on those new garments with me. I took a different look at life when I dressed up in a different suit. It was a different world indeed. The Bible tells us in Psalm 132 verse 9 that He hath clothed us with righteousness. And when I put on that garment, I began to live in a different world. Do you know how you dress? Programs your mind to think differently? You can dress up for a Halloween party and it will do something to your mind. While I don't advocate Halloween parties, I'm just telling you what happens. People begin to live that way. And one of the greatest problems in marriages in Hollywood is that after an actor plays a part, he cannot escape from living that same role for a period of time. See? Psalm 132, verse 16, the Bible says that He clothed me with salvation. See, that's what the Lord does, clothes you with salvation. Isaiah 61, 10, the Bible says He clothes us with garments of salvation. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, tells us that He clothes us with humility. Proverbs 31, 25, tells us, and this speaks of the lady... That strength and honor are her clothing. So you can see how that, that the Lord, when He fills you with the Holy Ghost, and you begin to live in a different world indeed as a result of your new life, you can see how He just kind of opens a closet and, and He just reclothes you. And then you begin to look at yourself in a different fashion altogether. Why? Because now you got on these big people's clothing. Listen, there's nobody in the world that's big like Christians. Christian garments are worn by men of character and by virtuous ladies. Salvation, righteousness, Humility, honor, and strength. And then he took me to another closet. And he opened it up. And he says, now here's your occupation. You are to be a real warrior. And he began to pull out the garments of war. He put on a helmet on me and said, this is the helmet of salvation. Gave me a shield and he said, this is the shield of faith. 
put a real live sword in my hand. And he said, this is the sword of my word. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. And shod my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And he led me to the door of his house. And he said, now, son, you go out and work. Now, these are big men's garments, and you live in them. And you fulfill that role. And I found out this was a big, big world indeed. And after a busy week of work, I can come back home where the family is. And there is a table that's spread. I mean a table that's spread. Jesus said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can be no part of me. To know that I can take the divine nature and character of Almighty God Himself and eat it. Do you know that God has a table spread right here, right here for us? We've hung our swords up. We put our shields in the closet. We're in the house of God now. It's time to eat. I don't know about you, but I've been eating tonight. Oh, have I been eating. When I walked in the front door, there was a dessert waiting for me. Somebody ran up with a big smile and I'll tell you, I just ate it up. Did something. I'm serious. Somebody shook my hand and said, I love you, Brother Grant. And I just felt the calories flow. I got bigger and bigger. Really. Then somebody walked up and put their hand on me and said, We're praying for you, Pastor Grant. You're talking about strength coming. Like a hunter taking a, uh, a, I said hunter, a runner taking a shot of honey. Did something. I'll tell you it did. And then when I got in here and the Lord began to feed us. Oh, man. Was it ever great. I mean, great, 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 great. Fantastic what God can do. Now, <clears throat> the word of the Lord and while this may not be the kind of message that would be real meat indeed, but, uh, you know, when babies are born, uh, we give them milk. Do you know, to you new converts, did you know that everything I do in my life, I wouldn't even explain it to you, let alone recommend it for you? Because you couldn't take it. If somebody would have run up to me when I was first saved and told me all the things I'd be doing today and liking it, it would have blown my mind when I came to God. I mean, it really would have. And I think one of the greatest problems sometimes in dealing with new babies is the fact that we feel sometimes, well, what's good for one is good for all. That is not what the Bible says. I'm, I'm serious. That's not what the Bible says. A new babe in Christ must be nurtured in the admonition and the fear of God 
with all long-suffering and sincere milk of the word. Why, you could go downstairs in the kitchen and cut off a big slab of meat out of the freezer and walk up in here and throw it in the nursery and say, Okay, you crying kids, eat it up. They'd take and look at it and say, What's that? And you see, that's what happens sometimes when you start serving God. Sometimes we want to give people what we've been eating, so we throw it out and say, Eat it! And they look at it and say, So that's Christianity? Well, no wonder. I say, no wonder. No wonder. I was even smart enough when I had my leaf walls and old sport tied in the back. And I was chewing sweet gum sap. I was smart enough to know that I need a little bottle for that baby that we got from Sears. I knew that. And so while we ate mud pies, he drank creek water that was running into that little pond. We didn't feed him mud pies. We knew that wouldn't work. You just don't do that for those babies. You know, they need, they need the milk, so to speak, while we eat the steak. But as you begin to grow and struggle, and your world begins to expand, and your zeal gets alive, and your hope is cultivated, the church begins to give you some meat so that you won't feel entrapped in that scrawny little frame. You got to get bigger and bigger. And bigger, so you can fulfill your wishes and desires in the world that God has put you in. That's so, so very, very, very vital. I had old sport tied out in the back barking at a biscuit while I was shooting criminals. But you know what? The Bible tells us that God has protection for us. Really? Did you know that you really have unseen enemies? I say you really do have unseen enemies. Paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. We wrestle against the rulers of darkness. And so as a result... Because we cannot see them with our eyes sometimes, people get the idea they don't exist. But friend, they do exist. I don't know how you feel, but 4873 Felon Road has an angel staked out in the back. And every time I feel that he's not there watching over, I say, i got to run back to the Father's house. And I've got to get some angel food. I've got to attract him. He's got to stay there. And every time some devil comes lurking in the darkness, I want him to say, Hey, John, it's time to get up and get your sword out of your closet. You've got to go to work now. 
this is a big world we're living in. I say, this is a big world we're living in. I say, it's a big world we're living in. The Bible tells us in Psalm 34, 7, that the angels of God encamp around and about those that fear Him and those that trust Him. In the book of Psalms, there is a psalm that happens to be a very, very, very favorite one of mine. And I just love it so very, very much. And I don't want to turn there. And I want to just start reading. And it's not necessary that you read along with me. But it's just been a great one for me over a period of years. Psalm 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night nor for the arrow that flieth by the day. We've got the angels camped around us. Old sports staked out in the backyard. He's watching over whatever would lurk in the darkness. Nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that worst, uh, wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand. But it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy Praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But i got to tell you something. As much as I enjoyed my childhood, and as much as I feel my childhood was very, very productive and taught me certain things about real life as much as I've enjoyed 24 years of marriage and three wonderful boys and many of the fine things of life and as much as I have enjoyed the church of which I do i got to tell you something. I really do feel, though, that what I want to see in God, I will never see while I am here. I feel trapped. I stand before the mirror and look, and I say, John, there's a big man inside that wants to get out. He's trapped up. And there has been enough cultivated through this healthy church life 
that makes me want to get out of this body. You know, it's, it's almost like I don't belong in here anymore. What is calling? The poet put it this way. He said, around the river bend is another bend I see. But the bend that's calling me is the bend I can't see. Over the mountain top is another top I see. But the top that's calling me is the top that I can't see. Around the country road is another curve I see. But the curve that's calling me is the curve that I can't see. It appears that what would be best for me, and of course this will be best for you one day also, is while I have grown weary and tired, in order for me to experience the big world that I want to experience, Somebody someday will have to pick up my tired body. And they'll have to bring it and lie down someplace. And Mother Church, along with some dear representative of our Father, will have to stand by my resting place. And while Mama kisses me by, and while Dad reads the bedtime story, some of my brothers will have to take and pull the old terra firma over my head like a child tucked in his bed and I will rest waiting for the alarm of tomorrow but I will assure you this one thing That when tomorrow's alarm goes off, and I wake up out of my bed, I'm going to go to the mirror and look, and I'm going to say, Thank God I outgrew that old flesh. man that I am, Paul said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? My sights are set on a world that's bigger than this world. 
And if somehow I could just get out of this little scrawny body. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Dad's building me a house. And there's something inside of me that says, go get your rest, John. Tomorrow, the world is going to be bigger than it's ever been before. Oh, we want the choir to come as you praise God, would you? short period of time you know what I'm going to do God lets me I've never been able to sing never been able to sing and I'm not saying this because I'm jealous I admire people who can sing Suzanne's going to be singing Sister Wittenbach, Sister Debbie Sister Crowder all of the people who sing in this church I'm going to, when I get out of this body, praise God, I'm going to sing like I've never sung before. Praise God. Praise God. I'm going to go by old Gabriel and I'm going to say, <laughs> pardon me, Gabe. <laughs> but I'd like for you to just be quiet a minute. <laughs> because i got a new song. <laughs> And it's so great that you can't even sing. And I want to lead you in the song of your life. Praise God. Would the choir sing right now? Oh! 